Now, well, welcome, real life. I, I, I know what you're thinking. I can't wait. I learned so much last week in the battle series. I can't wait to go deeper today. No, that's not what you're thinking. You're thinking, Gene, you could use a haircut. You think? All right, current, current affairs. Let, let's just kick off with some good news. Governor of Indiana Hokum has said, I'm, I'm opening up more things. That's good news. More good news. You don't live in Illinois. More good news. Political humor. S. Gene's back. Listen, as we get into this series, we're, we're going to spend a few moments each time just real quickly giving a little bit of a recap. Last week, God's a warrior. We understood that there's a huge battle going on every single day. It's an invisible war, and we are all involved, whether we know it or like it or not. Satan is continually slandering the church. Satan is not confined to hell, but roams the earth, and we are soldiers. We are not civilians. We are in the war under the supreme commander, and we're living out kingdom because we're in the war. Last week, God's a warrior. Today, the rebellion. We want to go a little bit deeper. How did it begin? We, we know we're in this war, and God's the absolute commander, but who are we fighting? What are we fighting? And where did it all begin? For, for our overall background, you're going to hear a lot today, the root cause of all unrest, all conflict, all war, the root cause of everything can be summed up in one word, rebellion. The root problem of the entire universe, rebellion against the government of God. Let's, let, let's look at this. I, I think a way to possibly look, consider the, the three main parts of a tree. You've got a root, a trunk, and branches, and the branches bear fruit. Let's say you're going to remove a tree. You don't cut off the branches and say, well, that's that. You've got to take the trunk and the root. Too many are preoccupied with solving branches of life. For, for example, let, let's, let's get more specific. Supposing someone is an alcoholic. Their addiction to alcohol is a branch, a symptom. Maybe the root is a resentment against their spouse, a resentment against their, their parents, a resentment against an event in their life somewhere. Solving the problem of alcoholism isn't the issue. That's a symptom. If we don't solve the root, you could possibly get rid of the alcohol problem and replace it with a different vice. The problem for the human race, the root, is rebellion. Everything else is a symptom. In other words, buckle up, sin is merely a symptom. Matthew chapter 3, verse 10. Now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Jesus always deals with the root. He's never monkeying around with symptoms. For the war, remember, rebellion, sin's a symptom. Jesus makes clear, we're living in a war and we must live kingdom life bearing good fruit or we're removed at the root. Yeah, the war is a priority. Even the Lord's prayer is a warrior prayer. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's saying, Lord, I'm no longer a rebel. Your will be done in my life. My rebellion is over. I'm committed to you. Your will be done in me. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy will be done. I'm no longer a rebel. This is a prayer of submission to the commander. The good news. When we submit and we're no longer a rebel, he offers peace. Isaiah 57, 19. I will give peace. 
real peace to those far and near. I will heal them, says the Lord. He is offering peace to all. This is not a truce. This is not a ceasefire. It's peace to those near and far. No boundaries, no exceptions. As we live for him and no longer a rebel against him, he gives us peace. But those that continue to be rebels, there is never peace. To them, he adds, the very next two verses, Isaiah 57 again, 20 and 21. But the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest. That's the opposite of peace, isn't it? Whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. You ever been on a troubled sea? It's a great example of no peace. Uh, many of you are aware, I, I have a wonderful privilege. I speak for cruise lines. I've done it for 30, 35 years or so. So I've been on tons of cruises. A storm at, uh, on a cruise is really rare. It's not a big deal. In all those cruises, Tammy and I have only been in one storm decades ago. It was unbelievable. The ship wasn't going like this. It was pitching and yawing in every which way. Everybody was sick. In the evening, when it hit, people were crawling to get outside. You couldn't stay in your room. They had bags taped everywhere just in case you couldn't make it outside. And we would lay outside because you would just look up at the stars and just try to fall asleep. The whole deck was filled with people because you couldn't be down in your rooms. It was a terrible, tragic night. I mean, the sea never stopped all night. I kept thinking, they don't put this in the brochure. No peace. No break. There was no time out. There was no rest. It was a storm at sea. And here God is saying, for those who are wicked, there is no peace. No time out. Those in rebellion. I think maybe one of the most convincing evidences that we're living for Christ is that we live in a spirit of peace. Okay, you know you're skipping the original question. How did it begin? All right, let's go there. We're also going to go, why? What's the motive? Most everybody understands the rebellion began with Satan, also called the devil. His name is actually Lucifer. This, this rebellion did not begin on earth. It began in heaven. It didn't begin with human beings, but it began with an archangel who's known as Satan, whose name is Lucifer. He had already alienated a large company of angels under his leadership to join him against God in this battle. He took it to the human race, recorded in Genesis chapter 3. We'll get into it. Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve are the parents of the human race. They were enticed into joining Satan in the battle. They ate the fruit. The fruit is not the issue. The tree is not even the issue. They joined Satan in discovering disobedience. Rebellion. Discovering disobedience. And the spiral of human events went down from there. As the war now invades human life, beginning in Genesis chapter 3. Sometimes people make a a mistake of seeing the Bible as this statement, a grand statement of all the universe. It is not. It is simply the story of a man named Adam and all of his descendants. Aspects of history are included because they help us deal with Adam and his descendants. That's why there's always this kind of tension between, between secular science and scripture. Secular science tries to deal with the entire history of the universe. Scripture doesn't. It's actually very specific. It deals with one man and his descendants and their stories. The very opening of the verse, the very opening of the Bible. One of the most great statements that never loses its impact. Genesis 1-1, the beginning. 
In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Whose beginning? God's? No, he has no beginning. It's the beginning of our story. The beginning of Adam's race. He speaks of authority here. In the beginning, God created. So I must step up to his authority or rebel against his authority. There is no third option. Various passages of Scripture make clear that angels and the heavens were created long before earth. Now, all of this happening before the creation of earth, before our story begins, theologians call this eternity past. We're going to be dealing with that. When I talk about eternity past, we're going to be talking about things that happened before the creation of the earth, before the words in the beginning of our story. One of my favorite stories about eternity past, Job's unhappy. He's been through a lot. He's really not pleased how God's running the universe. He's really not pleased about how he's being tested. And he's crying out to God, and God appears. And look what he answers, the questions he asks Job. Job 38, 47. He's dealing with eternity past with Job. He says, Job, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. In other words, tell me if you know it all. Who determined its measurements? Who stretched the line upon it? What were the foundations fastened? Who laid the cornerstones? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Talk about putting a guy in his place, huh? Notice, God's the creator, but he's also making it clear the heavens existed before the design and creation of the earth. We see the morning stars singing and the sons of God shouting for joy. Obviously, in this context, we're dealing with angels. As God laid the foundations of the earth and created the earth, angels were watching and shouted for joy. Heavenly hosts were already complete. They were there and they were watching the spectacle of creation and shouting for joy. Eternity passed. A huge verse of eternity passed. Jesus talks about something that happened before the creation of the earth. Luke chapter 10, verse 18. Jesus is saying, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Jesus is describing the judgment on this created angel named Lucifer, the Satan. He'd occupied a pretty high honored place in heaven. Maybe, get ready, Lucifer might have been the most beautiful thing God ever created. Satan is beautiful. Did he just say that out loud? Wait, Gene, I've seen all the horror movies. Satan's ugly. If he's not ugly, at least he's got a red cape and, and horns and a tail. Now, we're told about Satan. We're told how he looks. Ezekiel 28, verses 12 to 15, verses 12 to 15 excuse me. He's talking about and to Satan. You were the seal of perfection. Satan. Full of wisdom. Perfect in beauty. Get real. You were in the garden of God every Every precious stone was your covering. Then he gives examples. The sardis, the topaz, the diamond, the barrel, the onyx, jasper, sapphire, turquoise, emeralds with gold. The workmanship of your trimbles and pipes were prepared just for you on the day you were created. You're the anointed cherub who covers. I established you. You were the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the, in the midst of fiery stones. You were perfect in the ways that you were created. Then the end of the verse. Till... Iniquity was found in you. Wow. 
So Satan is beautiful. He totally grasps beauty. He can make things that are ugly look beautiful. He makes temptation look beautiful. If it wasn't beautiful, we wouldn't be tempted. He understands beauty because he is beautiful. But he is a created being and nothing more. And that overwhelming beauty, the image, the glory of God is why he rebelled. Pride motivated him to challenge God and want to be equal to God. Apparently, Lucifer has a lot of authority over a large block of angels. And they also joined him. He succeeded in alienating them against their loyalty of God. He led them in the rebellion. They also discovered disobedience. In response, Lucifer gained one-third of the angels. Okay, how? Well, Bible tells us. It uses the word trading, which means persistent plotting. Ezekiel 28, verse 16, then I'm going to go to verse 18. By the abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence within and you sinned. Then going on, you defiled your sanctuary by the multitude of your iniquities and the iniquity of your trading. Now the word trading would be translated also talebearer or slanderer. In other words, it's possible that someone that trades in goods or in gossip or lies. They're a talebearer. That's why Leviticus 19.6 says... You shall not be a talebearer among your people. Can't you see Lucifer working it? Under all those angels under his care, your position is beneath your ability. God doesn't see you. He doesn't appreciate your gifts. God doesn't see your potential. If I was in charge, you would be raised to a level more than you could really be used. How I would promote you. He must have worked it. We have no idea how long this happened. But over a period of time, he convinced one-third of the angels by his tail-bearing to join him in rebellion. All right, the question, how do we know it's a third? Well, Revelation tells us. Revelation 12, 4. His tail drew a third of the stars in heaven and threw them to the earth. Next question, a third of what? How many angels are there? This one we don't know. A billion, a trillion Maybe it's un unable to count. But so far this rebellion is in heaven, before earth. But once they cast out, cast out of heaven, it didn't end the rebellion. They took it to earth, to humans. Because Satan knows how to make temptation look beautiful. If it was ugly, we wouldn't be tempted. He knows how to make it look tempting, beautiful. Remember, he begins with a lie and builds momentum from there. Now, Satan has never changed the tactics. Why would you? If something works, don't change it. So he's doing the same thing he did back then. Tailbearing. He's a master of slander. Tailbearing. He undermines the authority of God in both the church and the world. To undermine God's authority, it began, of course, with Adam and Eve. God says, don't eat that one tree. The entire garden's yours. Just not that one tree. God began by creating limits. We must understand his authority. If there's authority, there must be limits somewhere. So he told them, enjoy this gigantic garden. Everything is yours. Just not that one tree. Satan, who understands beauty, made that tree look beautiful. Let me take time out. Let me change mics.
this on? Beautiful. Okay. Satan, who understands beauty, knew how to make that one tree look beautiful. More beautiful than any other tree. Probably wasn't. But Satan got them to focus on that one tree. He's an expert at creating beauty. Satan undermined God. He said, hey, that tree is better than any other one. That tree will make you like God. You'll have power. Pride. Satan always begins with a lie and builds momentum from there. He hit them at pride. Where Satan fell, his own destruction was because of pride. The, the, the tactic he used on one-third of the angels was because of pride. Satan tells us, don't live kingdom. Kingdom is living my life that God received glory. Don't do that. Live for you. Live for your glory. He always has reasons. God's receiving glory from my life. Very risky. Hold on to something. Covet something. My time. My finance. My talents. My future. Hold on to something. This tactic has undermined God and his authority. If I'm not living kingdom, living God, receive glory, then Satan is robbing that and therefore he's receiving glory. Lucifer wants the glory that's designed for God because you can't give glory to God and Satan at the same time. You're giving glory to one or the other. All right. Let's peel the onion. Let's go a little bit deeper. Paul outlines this government structure. If he's rebelling against the government, what is his government structure? There seems to be layers to his structure. Colossians 1.16. For by him, him here is Jesus, all things were created that are in heaven and earth, visible and invisible. Here it is. Whether thrones or dominions or principalities or power. There's the levels. God's kingdom is built around thrones, dominions, principalities, power. When one-third of the angels fell, they only fell from the bottom half principalities and power. He was not able to touch the top half of authority, thrones or dominions. How do we know this? The Bible tells us a lot about this stuff. Ephesians 6.12 is a warfare verse, talking to us. For we, me and you, do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. That's it. Under them, of course, it says, against rulers of darkness of this age, spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Again, heavenly places, going back to last week, plural. Principalities and powers. Under them would be rulers of darkness, spiritual hosts. These are demons. But Paul is really being inspired by the Holy Spirit. He does not mention thrones or dominions. The implication, this fall, whatever it is, the demons, whoever they are, did not come from the upper echelon of the, of the government of God. Lucifer fell because of his pride. It all kicked off because of pride. It began with pride. We know this. Ezekiel 28, 17, talking to Satan. Your heart was lifted up. You became proud. Because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. He is one of splendor, and he has wisdom. The Bible calls Satan evil, never once calls him dumb. His wisdom is now perverted. And it's all about who's getting glory. Is God getting glory for my life, or is he not? You say, what's the meaning of life? I just gave it to you. Is God receiving glory from your life? You were put on this earth so that God would receive glory. 
The scripture says Lucifer's heart was lifted up because of his beauty. So the, the first sin wasn't Adam and Eve. The first sin wasn't murder. The first sin wasn't adultery. The first sin wasn't robbery. The first sin was pride. His pride produced the rebellion and the spiral from there. All the way back in eternity past. Furthermore, it's ironic. His pride came from his beauty. God gave him the beauty in the first place. His pride came from the very gift God gave him. God gave him the power that he had. God gave him the authority that he had. God created him to be beautiful. Be careful of your gifts. The very gifts that you have could be used wrongly for your own pride, for your own destruction. Men and women today are making the same mistake. Okay, let's keep peeling the inland. The rebellion source, pride. What's the motive? Every crime's got a motive. Did Lucifer have a motive? Absolutely. And again, it's amazing how much stuff Scripture tells us about this. His motive. Isaiah 14, 12 to 15. How you have fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. You cut down to the ground. You've weakened the nations. You have said in your heart, here it comes, said in your heart, here comes the motive. I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars. I will sit on the mount of the congregation of the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like or equal to the Most High. Yet you shall be brought down to Shul, the lowest depths of the pit. And last week we talked about different levels, heaven and hell. Here the pit must have lowest levels. He is in the absolute lowest level of hell, the lowest level of the pit. So Lucifer, his motive, he makes five declarations. All the declarations begin with, I will. Here they are, remember? I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne. I will sit on the mount of the congregation. I will ascend upon the height of the clouds. I will be like or equal to God. So scripture makes a point of showing the contrast between Lucifer and Jesus. First of all, Lucifer is not a form of God. He's created. But look like this. Reaching up, he fell. On the other hand, Jesus divine, he is equal to the Father. He didn't need to reach up. He instead humbled himself, the opposite of pride. Paul vividly lays this out in Philippians. Philippians chapter 2, verses 68. Who being the form of God, did not consider it to be robbery, to be equal to God, but made him of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of men, And being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death, even to the death on the cross. These downward steps, the opposite of Satan. He made himself no reputation. In other words, he emptied himself. Took the form of a servant. The king of kings became a servant. Became likeness of man. He became just like Adam's race, lower than the angel's was found in the appearance of man. In other words, there was no difference between him walking down the street and somebody else. He he was just, just like them. He humbled himself. He didn't come like a ruler. He came as the household of a carpenter. He became obedient to death. Perfect obedience. He became obedient to death and then as a criminal on the cross. These seven downward steps of humility lead to seven statements of God of praise. Upward steps. 
The next, very next verses, Philippians 2, 9 to 11. Therefore, or because of that humility, therefore, God also exalted him, of course, Jesus, giving him the name above every name. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Those on heaven, those on earth, and those under the earth. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. All about glory. So now we have seven upward steps of Jesus. God has exalted him, given him a name above all names. At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. All those in heaven, all the created hosts, all those under the earth will submit. Satan's realm in Hades, all of death and hell, all rebels will declare that Jesus is Lord, King of kings, and then every tongue shall confess Jesus is Lord. And all this is this perfect pattern of Jesus telling us guard against pride. Pride says God is not receiving glory. He becomes the example. So Paul comes along and says, you follow his example. Philippians 2, verses 3, 4, and 5. Let nothing be done in selfish ambition or conceit. Lowless in mind. Esteem others better than yourselves. Look, let each of you look not only for your interests, but the interests of others. Let this be the mind which is in you, which was also in Jesus. The style of Jesus is to be our style so that we do not receive glory, so that God receive glory and Satan is defeated. That's the war. Jesus himself gave us the principle, Luke 14, 11. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Is that not the story of Satan and Jesus? Satan tried to exalt himself and thrown out of heaven like lightning. Jesus humbles himself and every name, every, everyone shall bow down at the name of Jesus. Satan was all about self-glory and pride. Satan's whole life was, I will. If we live in humility... In the kingdom, God receives glory. That's why we're crying out in the Lord's Prayer. Thy will be done. You receive glory in me because we're in a war. Okay, Gene, I'll be humble. That's not a set of emotions. This is an act of will. This is where we restart our day. I will live today that God receive glory. Tomorrow, I will live tomorrow that God receive glory. The next day, when you wake up Tuesday, I will live today that God receive glory. Satan's pride brought him down, brought down a third of the angels. Pride was the first sin. They say that global tolerance will be the last sin, maybe. That pride will be the first sin. This is the battlefield. This is your Normandy. This is your beachhead. This is the walls of Jericho that God's touch has got to bring down. This is the Gettysburg where we finally figure out who's going to win this thing. This is your biggest battle. God, may you receive glory in my life. I live that you are glorified with my time, my finance, my talents, my home, my future. To your glory, everything is laid on the altar for your glory because I'm in the war. I step down. My very life, I step down. Not in sarcastic humility, but in praise to God. Proverbs 18, 12, before honor is humility. Pride says, I will have my own way, and by the way, I'm more valuable than you. Growing up as a kid, there was a TV show I liked because it was so creative. The old Twilight Zone. Ding, 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 ding. 
it was those stories, half-hour stories were incredibly creative. And now, I think it's Me TV. There's a TV show that runs those old 1960s Twilight Zones at like 11, 11 o'clock or midnight. I'm a night. I, I watch them and I remember. Just this last week, there, there was a story. I thought, that's my sermon. Let, let me give you a real quick synopsis. And I'm, I, I, this is a spoiler alert. I'm going to wreck it. Mr. Ballantyne in the story is a petty criminal. He's, he's, he's committing a robbery and he's shot and killed. And he, he wakes up and he's in what he believes is heaven. And there's a guide there in a white suit. And Mr. Ballantyne, I, I'm here to guide you. And he's shown the apartment that's designed just for him. It's this palatial, wonderful apartment. He says, what, what, what is your desire? And, and, and Ballantyne can't hardly believe it. He says, well, I, I want a million bucks in cash. And nothing happens. He says, see, it's all, it's all fake. And the guide says, Mr. Ballantyne, look in the top drawer. Pulls out the drawer. He's throwing money in the air laughing. And he, and, and he says, I, I, I want to be with a beautiful woman. And, and back then they had the old stereo, dropped the record down, music played, and up, up comes dancing this gorgeous woman. And, and they're dancing around the room. And Mr. Ballantyne is laughing. He can't believe he's in heaven. How wonderful this place is. And, and, and the guide says, what would, you, what would you like, Mr. Ballantyne? He says, is there a casino here? Yeah. They go to the casino, and everything Mr. Ballantyne touches is a win. He plays blackjack. He gets two cards at 21. He rolls dice at 7. He, he, he plays every game there is, and women are flocking around him. Oh, Mr. Ballantyne, how lucky you are. I can't believe how lucky you are. He plays the one-armed bandit. Down comes the money. Day after day after day, everything he touches is gold. He never loses until he becomes so bored. He walks down a hall with all these one-armed bandits. Pull pull just in boredom. Money comes flying down to each and everyone. He's beginning to go nuts. The joy that happened at first is now driving him crazy. And, and he calls for the guy and he says, listen, can, 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 I got to have some excitement. And, and the guy says, well, you're, you're, you're in the casino. He says, can I rob a bank? He says, yes, we, we can make that happen. But is there a chance, any chance that I can get caught? Well, we, we can make that happen. No, 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 don't, don't just make it happen. I, I don't want to know. And finally, after more time of, of this constant winning, constant anything he wants, he's realizing, I don't like heaven. I hate it. It's driving me nuts. And he calls to his guide, and he's pulling his hair out and screaming, I can't do another day of this. It's killing me. I, I can't spend another moment in here. It, it, this, this heaven is nutty. I don't want to be here any longer. I'll go to the other place. And the guide looks him in the eye and his voice changes a little bit and says, Mr. Ballantyne, this is the other place. And it ends with the guide in this sinister laughter and it fades out as he's laughing. This is the other place. There is no greater slavery than one who insists in having their own way in all situations. Nothing has destroyed human relationships, marriage, to the bondage of your own wishes. Pride always ends up a prison. Remember, Satan fell because of pride. All his temptations have their source in pride. What's for me? The core of sin. Demanding what I want. God will not receive glory because I demand what I want. I live for me. That means I'm technically living for Satan because I'm robbing God of glory that we're designed to give him. We've lost the war. You ever, you ever notice in weddings, don't we love reading 1 Corinthians 13? It's the love chapter. I can't think of the last wedding I've gone to. I haven't heard this chapter. You ever notice 
1 Corinthians 13, 4? Love is not boastful. Love is not proud. Win the battle of your spiritual war. Jesus, may you receive glory in my life. Father, we come before you. Satan knows how to make temptation look good. Because the Bible calls him wise. It's a perverted wisdom. If temptation looked bad, we wouldn't be tempted. Satan knows how to make temptation look good. And the bottom line is me. Living for me. Pride. It's how Satan fell. It's how a third of the angels fell. It's how it was introduced to the human race. And we all fall for the same thing. Why on earth should he change his tactics when the old one keeps working? Father, may there be a discipline to my soul. I will live that you receive glory. And we praise you. Next week, we are going to step out a little bit of the series. We want to honor Mother's Day, May 10th. It's called Memories of a Son. But May 17th, we're going to jump back in. Let me give you a line that's going to bother you. The creation of human beings is because of the war in eternity past. Don't go fast. The very creation of human beings is because of the war in eternity past. Say what? We're going to break that down the 17th. I'm going to peel, peel the onion back a little bit. Go even deeper. But next week, let's celebrate Mother's Day. And now let's just praise him as we continue to worship together.